Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Can this rally be trusted? Today's tapes seem to send mixed messages, starting off strong, then pausing in the middle of the day, and coming back at the end of the session. Dow ultimately gaining 68 points, S&P advancing 0.09%, NASDAQ climbing 0.11%. But that is what people want to know, right? Is this a genuine rally? Is it credible? I think this whole line of inquiry is patently absurd. It stems from a belief that all declines are true, realistic, and genuine, but all gains are suspect. Even today, when the averages pulled back, we heard that after seven up days, the market's finally showing its true colors today, even though it only finished up an eighth. You know what? I got to tell you, I was stunned. Was there really... Was there really nothing true about the 1,400-point rally from the lows a week and a half ago? Was that all just a big joke? Why is there such a double standard, people? Why do we assume that all sell-offs are honest and all rallies are liars? Even though the bear case carries much more weight in the media, i got to tell you that the bull thesis here has got some real gravitas, too. Consider that this is now indeed our eighth straight-up day, and you don't rally like that for no reason. It's not random. In fact, I see five reasons why this move was legitimate. I'm not saying will be, but was. Okay, so let's just go over the history here. First, we just come through the bulk of earnings season. The vast majority of companies both reported better-than-expected numbers and, more important, raised their forecast future. The best predictor of a stock's direction is whether or not it beat those earnings estimates and whether it can raise numbers. And look, it's not like the analysts are just getting sandbagged left and right. They do their best to come up with accurate numbers. Listen to the conference calls. Most of the questions seem really strange if you're just a retail investor, but they're about how they're trying to model the next quarter and they need help. They want to know what to use for estimates the rest of the year. That's what those questions are about. So when a company beats those estimates and also raises its forecast, it's a big deal. If you can't trust the rally based on outside surprises, what can you trust? Second, when we look at the earnings on mass, they're substantially better than we thought they'd be, at least so far. That means the market as a whole was actually cheaper than we believed. Things that looked expensive before now seem cheaper because the earnings are higher. When we came into the year, the S&P 500 as a whole was selling at 18 times earnings. Now it's selling at just 16 times earnings. 18 times earnings is a little expensive. 16 Let's call it reasonable, although I have seen it as low as 12 and 14 times in the last few years after gigantic sell-offs. A lower valuation makes it harder for stocks to get hammered because too many people want in. 
Third, we keep hearing about all these buybacks, and I totally get it. There are plenty of companies using excess capital, including the money from the tax reform, to repurchase their stock. But I really don't think that is what's driving the market, as most buybacks are kind of, frankly, pretty lame. Sure, a little bit of stock is being repurchased each day, but not enough to make a difference to the share price or even the earnings per share. Unless a company's buying back more than 5% of the share count each quarter, it's really not going to move the needle. The best buyback I know of right now is Citigroups. They're buying, uh, retiring 7% of the stock each year. Yet Citi's lag behind some of its largest competitors, which are buying back a lot less stock. Still, I get it. Buybacks can be tabulated, and they are tangible tokens of credibility. People are always looking to hang their hat on something, so they hang it on buybacks. Fourth, takeovers have become a staple of this market, and these deals are huge, the largest on record year to date. Consider some of these gigantic transactions. T-Mobile's uh, bid to buy Sprint. Marathon Pete's purchase of Andes. Cigna's buying of Express Scripts. Hey, look, let's just throw in Broadcom's failed attempt to acquire Qualcomm. The real importance of these deals is they tell you that stocks might be cheaper than you think. Finally, fifth, so many people were negative going into this earnings season, in part because they were worried about rising interest rates, but also because they were afraid of a trade war with China. Much of this rally was caused by short sellers who were forced to cover their bets, particularly against FANG and against the S&P 500 as a whole. Okay, now, given all of these substantive reasons for the advance, with the least credible in my eyes being the one that everybody likes so much, the buybacks, the most accepted, how can pundits and money managers still agonize over whether the rally is real? Well, let me explain. There are tons of managers who think the market should never rally because stocks go up on hype and hope, but go down on reality. Money managers talk about it. This narrative is well understood by the media, and those money managers get featured a lot. And you know what? I totally understand where they're coming from. And actually, I think that they're somewhat necessary. And here's an anecdote why. Today, this morning, on our own network, Ron Barron, very good money manager, announced that he expects to make 20 times our money on Tesla. I found this statement very painful. Why? Well, we know this company loses money hand over fist. We know that its CEO, Elon Musk, has constantly talked a big game and not backed it up with the production numbers needed to hit his projections. Meanwhile, high-level execs keep leaving the company. Two just left in the last 72 hours. And at any other company, that would be a serious red flag. How can we give Tesla a free pass? Why? Finally, even the bullish analysts on Wall Street accept that the company might have to raise capital, something that Musk is adamant about not needing. These things all make me suspicious of the stock of Tesla, even as I like the cars very much. But here's a respected manager telling you not that he expects the stock will go higher, not that he thinks it can advance 20 percent, not that he thinks it can double or even triple or even go up 10 times. No, he's talking about a 20-fold increase, which would make Tesla the world's first trillion-dollar company. It's madness. Madness. This kind of prediction is the reason why so many investors refuse to believe anything positive. They assume it's all hype. This is the kind of promotion that makes people feel like that the stock market is a bunch of hooey and any rally must be fraudulent. We all also know at any given moment there are stocks that seem to be so expensive because they've gone up so much that they do strain credulity. Why? Because when we get a sell-off, it tends to be a lot more severe and rapid than any rally and makes us feel like maybe it is all crazy. For example, the Cloud Kings, which you know I like, they dropped gobs of points today after rallying pretty steadily for weeks on end. The sell-off was far more dramatic than their advance. I think their weakness, by the way, is a worrisome sign for tech, and I expect to hear tomorrow in the media that it's time to pronounce Fang dead again because of the sell-off we 
got today in Red Hat and Adobe as they hit their all-time highs and then pirouetted, reversed in that kind of wicked fashion that I'm talking about that's going to make people say, wow, I'm scared. So given the combination of genuine hype like we're seeing in Tesla and the vicious nature of any sell-offs, it's easy to believe that, you know what, this rally is totally fraudulent, even when the overall stock market isn't that expensive by historical standards. But I think that'd be a mistake. Here's the bottom line. I hate the hype. You heard me. I hate the hype. I'm calling it out on this on my own show. But you have to recognize that the speed of a move tells you nothing about its legitimacy. A slow and steady rally is just as truthful as a rapid decline. I think it's a mistake to just assume that every sell-off is legitimate and every rally is bogus. You'll miss a lot of upside that way. In fact, given the stock market's tremendous long-term track record, you know what? I think our bias should really go the other way. Rather than being suspicious of every gain and trusting of every decline, maybe we should be dismissive or at least more dismissive of declines. Maybe give the gains a little more benefit of the doubt. Let's go to Brian in Colorado. Brian. Booyah. Booyah. Uh, My stock is uh, Kinder Morgan. Yeah. Uh, I've been dollars averaging in stock because of the increasing dividend and the lowering of their debt ratio. With oil prices rising and with the protesting going on against the Trans Mountain Pipeline, you think Kinder Morgan is improving? And do you see this as a buying opportunity? I actually think that at this point, Kinder Morgan, a dollar and a half off its low with a with a f- almost five percent yield. I think it's okay to buy, but I understand this group is awful. That is the first time. That's a change of view for me. The group is awful, but I recognize that there is some value here. Let's go to Larry in Texas. Larry. Big booyah to you, Mr. Kramer. Yes, same. What's up? Oh, calling about the stock, Acadia Pharmaceuticals. Back in September, the stock (coughs) topped out at $14.51. I mean, $41.21 a share. It's fallen ever since. Looks like it finally bottomed at $14.51. But the crazy thing, now it's trading around 19, but all the analysts have price targets from 49 to $60. Am I missing out on something, or yeah, what's your opinion? Yeah, you are. It was that um, the FDA reexamining the safety of its drug because of a, a CNN report, uh, which myself, I have to admit, I was uh, chagrined by and, and have uh, backed away from because I don't like that kind of publicity. Let's go to Gregory in California, please. Gregory. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. How are you doing today? All right. Oh, yeah, it's all good. How about you? I'm great. I'm a club member, and I just want to say thank you for everything that you do, and I cannot wait for that call tomorrow morning. Can't wait. 11.30 tomorrow, club call. Thank you so much, actualersplus.com club. What's up? I'll be there. I'm calling about this company, Electroscientific Industries, ticker is E-S-I-O. They, they posted some good earnings. They have a really good new CEO who's been in there for two years and promises not to do any more restructuring. Now, I... I know you're going to hate this. Please don't just discount them because they are under a billion market cap. But they, they, they went up today with the rest of the semiconductor industry. Okay. Uh, they've got a nice jump today of 2%. All right. Uh, and yet only, only 30% of their business is actually in the semis. The rest of it is this nanotechnology. Right, right. It's a lot of other businesses, uh, but it's also got automotive, which people think is the kiss of death. Let me do more work on that situation because I've got to tell you, this is more, it's just more of a pastiche than it is just a straight semiconductor company. So we're going to do some more work. And thank you for the kind words about the club. How about Bruce in Pennsylvania, please? Bruce. Uh, hello, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. 
Uh, do you believe that there could be a possible trap in the theme that oil prices will continue to go to $80 per barrel because of the Iranian sanctions? President Trump mentioned that our allies support our sanctions against Iran, and he called out both Saudi Arabia and Russia as supporters to the sanctions. Right. Could there be a deal with either or both countries to aid us when oil reaches a certain level? You know what? Thank I wish them. there were. I do not detect anything. I do not. I mean, I know the president felt that OPEC was involved. No, it's Saudi Arabia. They've got to produce more oil. Look, Saudi Arabia and Russia are holding back oil. We're not going to be able to do anything with Russia. But there is a million barrels that the Saudis could pump out extra right now. And that would lower the price to 60. If the president wants to do it, it's the right thing to do. All right, don't sniff so heavily at the rallies, people. Investors are more worried about avoiding sell-offs than catching advances. And I think that maybe it should be, uh, let's say, equal. And they have money tonight. Who says this isn't the most interactive show on television? A few weeks ago, I highlighted Forescout as an under-the-radar cybersecurity play. Tonight, I'm going to talk with the CEO. Don't miss my exclusive. Then my take on the wild action in Shake Shack. It's a quality company riding a hot theme. But should you order up some shares after its recent move higher? And it's a company that's tripled the gains of the S&P 500 over the past five years, up more than 200% in that time. But is SS&C's leg lower a red flag or a potential buying opportunity? Why don't you stick with Kramer? Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Regular viewers know that I'm a big fan of the cybersecurity stocks, but what do we do when one of these names keeps getting pummeled, even though it keeps reporting fantastic numbers? Consider the case of Forescout Technologies. It's a software company that uses what they call an agentless approach to network security. Basically, they help their clients monitor all of the devices connected to their networks, something that's increasingly essential thanks to the rise of the Internet of Things. Historically, you need to install a different program on each device, but Forescout does things differently. They monitor the whole network to prevent breaches. It's a smart approach, which but we know because the company keeps shooting the lights out. Last week, Forescout delivered a nice top and bottom line B. Even better, management gave higher than expected guidance for the next quarter and also raised the full-year forecast, what we look for on the show. But while the stock rallied a bit last Friday in response, it actually got hit today. And it's part of a broader downturn that's caused the stock to lose about 10% of its value since I recommended it a month ago. Why? I think the issue here is that Forescout Scout came public at the end of October, which means that the lockup on insider selling recently expired. This is the kind of thing that can really hurt a stock, even if the fundamentals remain strong. It doesn't have anything to do with the company itself. That said, I very much like the story. And if this thing keeps getting slammed, you might want to really buy something to weakness. Don't take it from me. Let's check in with Michael DeCaesar, DeCaesar I'm sorry, the president and CEO of Forescout Technologies, to learn more about the quarter and where his company's at. Mr. DeCaesar, welcome to Mad Money. Thank you very much. All right, Michael, let me just immediately say, you know, I like the stock, recommended it. Uh, and a little freaked out, like many other people, that you did plus 40%, okay, which is really extraordinary. There's a huge plethora of Internet of Things that have to be protected. Just tell us what you do so that when people buy the stock, which I think they should, as you know, because I recommend higher, they understand the long runway that you have. 
There's been a fundamental shift in the IT landscape since about 10 years ago when IT departments would be able to fundamentally control everything that was joining their network. You would buy servers and you would put products on those and put them in your data center. You would buy Windows machines and you'd load them with all kinds of software and then put them onto your network. And what started with BYOD and it's kind of worked its Bring way your own over device. IoT right. has been this growth of devices that don't subscribe to that traditional architecture. If you're a hospital, beds are online now. If you're an airline, right. it's the gates and the planes. And all of these new use cases, in many cases, are closed operating systems that you can't load software on top of, and Forescout fills that void. Okay, so look, I know everybody has an iPhone, but I don't know any systems that are, that are Apple. There are all these other systems, but I want to use my device, and I know that the IT people say no. Could they say yes if they had Forescout? So if you have Forescout installed, if a company has Forescout installed in their environment, what they get is the ability to allow everything into the network and let us agentlessly decide if those devices are compliant and keep an eye on them to make sure they're doing the right things when they're online. So if we're installed, then we give customers much more flexibility on deploying devices. Okay, so let's say I work at Citi, which is a marquee client, and we like Mike Corbett very much, and we think that the company's incredibly well run. Uh, they've got to have hundreds of thousands of devices. How can you monitor them all? So they've got over a million devices under management with us today. They're one of our, you know, one of our premier customers, and they use us across kind of the traditional camp environment, things like Windows and, and Unix and Linux, and all of those other use cases like security cameras and HVAC controllers and all of that, we keep it organized, as well as the data it's, center I mean, itself, You're talking too. about like thermostats, smart buildings you keep control under. Correct. So they can't be hacked. Well, so the, these devices, the difference is, then you take your home as an example, right, is you buy a Nest thermostat and you put it on the network, you hit pair, and it's online. Right. But it's not an open device. The hardware, the software, and the operating system is all one thing. You can't install antivirus or some product on that. Right. And that is representative in a corporate environment of things like HVAC controllers and security cameras and all of these other use cases. And what we do is we give the organization the ability to allow all of that online. We watch it. We know it's a security camera. Mm -hmm. We know what it's allowed to speak to. And if it does something it's not supposed to do, we give that organization the ability to pull that device offline so it, it can't it, be more harmful. In your documents, I saw that you, in your uh, Q&A, uh, WannaCry was something that uh, let virus, you know, that was a virus that got in through, uh, through Windows. And, and you've got to monitor that kind of thing, too. All of it. So if you take something like WannaCry, people didn't think that they had an older version. It leveraged an older version of the Windows operating system called XP. Mm -hmm. Most organizations would have told you they'd had a policy of no XP for many, many right. years. And then we woke up one day and realized there was still XP in environments. And if you move over to the Mirai botnet, right, we never thought twice about our security cameras being online until we woke up one day and hundreds of thousands of them were doing something more problematic. And it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing for IT departments to keep up on because the diversity of devices that is exploding in such a way, it's a big challenge going down right now. Uh, another thing people should recognize is you have partners. I mean, Palo Alto Networks is one of our favorites. Splunk is one of our favorites. How do you work with them? Do they call you in? You bring them in? So we've built partnerships with all of them. The way that our base product works is we plug into the network infrastructure, the Cisco gear, the firewalls. We take all the data off those machines and we turn that into a real-time dashboard that answers a question that every company in the world is dealing with in 2018, which is what's on my network. 
We then share that information with the firewall vendors like Palo Alto, the SIM vendors like Splunk, the, the endpoint vendors. We have about 20 of those, and they're, they, they're proving to be quite useful. All right, so what is, last question, what is, give me a disaster scenario. Like, what is the thing we should be most scared of? I think the thing that we should be most scared of as a nation is the fact that in addition to our campus environments, and it's you know inconvenient if a thermostat or if a right. work laptop does something concerning, but now we're seeing attacks that are targeting more of our critical infrastructure. And as we look out there, a lot of these machines that have been in place were 20 old. plus years old before there was even APIs on machines, right. yet they're now on those same company networks. But the, the severity, if those devices is compromised, is much more significant than it would be in other use cases. And organizations need to understand what's on those extended networks so that they can make sure those devices are behaving the way they should. Well, I can tell from your growth that they're not aware enough because plus 40% growth is very hard to find. This is Michael DeCesar. He's the president and CEO of Four Scout Technologies. These stocks, a lot of them are cloud kings. They're all heavy today. Could be heavy tomorrow. But you know what? That's when you buy them, not when you sell them. They have money's back after the break. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Have you heard uh, about, uh, you could get the, uh, no, I mean, because people have a hard time saying, but I don't. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Now that the dust has started to settle in the most crowded and confusing weeks of earnings season, can we finally take a moment to circle back to some of the most stunning numbers we saw this quarter? And you know what really blew me away this time around? Shake Shack, the super high-end burger chain. After spending years lost in the wilderness, as Shake Shack's results could never quite seem to justify the incredible hype from when the company came public in early 2015, this thing now looks like it's got a new lease on life. A week and a half ago, Shake Shack reported a phenomenal quarter, so good that its stock surged $8 or 18% in a single session. And since then, it's tacked on just over 2 bucks for good measure. So is the Shack back? After this kind of move, you have to ask yourself, is it sustainable? On the one hand, the company makes incredible burgers and fries and shakes, and it's got the makings of a fantastic growth story as they put up new locations in some of the wealthiest parts of the country and also around the world. No one doubts the deliciousness of Shake Shack's burgers. Do you? I mean, I sure don't. But there's a difference between the quality of a company's wares and the quality of its stock, and that's what we're going to focus on now. The problem with Shake Shack from the very beginning, ever since it came public in 2015, is that this stock has been incredibly expensive uh, right from the get-go. The hype here was unbelievable. The valuation, astronomical. I think it was bid up because people love the food so much. For those of you who don't remember, Shake Shack came public with a bang back at the beginning of 2015. The stock quickly rocketed to the stratosphere. There was a lot of excitement over this deal. And at the time, I told you to try to get a piece of the IPO. Smart call, IPO priced at 21 open for trading is $47. But that's when I balked. See, at those levels, Shake Shack's locations were being valued at $28 million per store. Per store. That's 11 times the value of a McDonald's, 70 times the value of a Burger King. Now, I love the burgers. I love Danny Meyer, founder and chairman. But valuation matters here. And I just couldn't justify those levels. I didn't want you to get hurt. Now, the stock kept screaming higher. So you could say I got off too early. Less than four months after the IPO, Shake Shack peaked. It peaked at 96 bucks. What happened? Short squeeze. Short sellers got crushed there at the top and were forced to close out their short positions. At the end of the day, though, there's only so much investors will pay for shares in a burger chain. Sure, 
the stock came down from its peak just as quickly. By January of 2016, less than a year after the IPO, Shake Shack had plummeted to $30, 96 to 30. It repealed the whole move and then some. And then the stock spent the next two years range bound between the low 30s and the low 40s, what I most feared. The reason for this weakness, it really comes down to the law of large numbers, in my opinion. The bigger your business gets, the harder it is to sustain a sky-high growth rate. So while Shake Shack had a fantastic concept, its revenue growth slowed from 61% the year it came public to 41% in 2016 to under 34% last year. Don't get me wrong, that's still phenomenal growth Right. Most restaurant chains would kill for those numbers. But Shake Shack is not most restaurant chains. This thing had always been, a, been valued more kind of like a cloud king than a restaurant chain. Even after the monster sell-off in the second half of 2015, this stock has been prohibitively expensive. In 2016, it sold for 78 times earnings. Last year, it sold for 62 times earnings. Cheaper, but still kind of exorbitant when you think about it. Maybe earnings are the wrong metric, though. Perhaps you need to look at the value per store. Last year, the average Shake Shack valuation, uh, each location was valued at $8.1 million. That's still a lot of money. It's down a lot. Uh, but it, it, it's really, in the end, just a fa- fancy, fast, casual restaurant. That's a lot of money per store. Making things more difficult, Shake Shack's same-store sales showed pretty uh, – you know, they slowed. Frank, frankly, it was shocking how much they slowed. And it really scared people away. In 2015, right after the company came public, it was putting up 13.3% same-store sales growth. Not bad. Better than everyone I followed. 2016, all right, numbers slowed to 4.2%. Good, not great. But then get this. Last year, it actually went negative, down 1.2%. It is really hard to justify paying a premium for a chain where the same-store sales are shrinking. You know what? I mean, if it weren't for Shake Shack, I would say, in, in the quality of the food, I would say it should trade at a discount. Now, fast forward to the beginning of this year, and Shake Shack's stock started to find its groove again. The reason? People realized the industry, the restaurant industry in general, and Shake Shack in particular, could be huge winners from tax reform. But then Shake Shack reported mid-February, and while the quarter was better than expected, the company's full-year guidance was not so hot. Management forecasted flat same-store sales and slightly lower than anticipated revenue, so the stock got clobbered as it should have. However, the past couple of weeks, it started running again on very little news. Someone certainly had a good feel for about the next quarter. Why? I think people really wanted to like Shaq again. It's a great story. It's just, it, it, it's got great food. It, it's growing faster than any other restaurant in America. So investors are always looking for an excuse to get in. They just needed to be able to justify it to themselves. A week and a half ago, they finally got the justification they've been looking for. Shake Shack reported a big top and bottom line beat. Perhaps more important, the company's same-store sales increased by 1.7%. Okay, not that much. But remember, the analysts are looking for a 0.4% decline. Remember, other than the valuation, the tepid same-store sales were the only real knock on the thing. Take that negative away, and it's easier for people to get, uh, get them to pay up for the stock. Even better, management raised their full-year guidance. Not a ton, but enough that you don't feel like a total moron for wanting to buy the darn thing. And look, uh, Randy Garuti is the CEO. He tells a terrific story. He explained that the year's off to a good start, talked about the plan to add 32 to 35 new locations, increasing the store count by about 21 percent, praised the company's digital initiatives, mentioned the expansion in Asia. Snake, uh, Shake Shack just had opened its first Hong Kong location two weeks ago. That's when the stock caught fire, rallying 18 percent in a single day as the shorts, who controlled 20 percent of the float, once again got steamrolled. However, while some analysts lapped it up, J.P. Morgan downgraded the stock a couple of days later. Real buzzkill. Why? They pointed out that while Shake Shack's same-store sales were up, the same-store traffic is still declining, down 4.2%. The margins aren't too great either. Now, remember, that means that the 
they could raise the price of the ticket, so to speak, but the traffic was bad. A lot of people look at traffic as being the lead indicator. It was a valuation call, really, that they were making. After the huge run, the darn thing just got too expensive again. And I got to tell you, I think J.P. Morgan actually has a point here. I wish I could tell you it's time to buy Shake Shack. I wish I could tell you this is the level. But look at where the stock is trading. Once again, it sells for 79 times next year's earnings estimates, 63 times the 2020 numbers. That's just too pricey for a stock with earnings growth in the mid-20s. McDonald's sells for less than 20 times next year's numbers. Wendy's for 24 times those numbers. What if we value it like a tech stock? Well, Shake Shack sells for 3.7 times sales. That's how we value some of these tech stocks. That makes it in line with Spotify, which I think is a terrific stock. Value per store, uh, now it's a little under $13, at $13 million per store. $13 million, that's too much. Here's the bottom line. If you caught this monster rebound in Shake Shack, good for you. But you might want to ring the register here, or at least take part of your position off the table. Unlike Shake Shack's reasonably priced burgers, the stock is incredibly expensive again. And I just can't get behind anything where the risk-reward is so clearly not in your favor. Curtis in North Carolina. Curtis. Kramer, thanks so much for taking the call today, man. I hope you're well. Oh, man, all good. How about you? Jim, good, good down here in Carolina. Jim, I'm calling you today, reference on Wendy's, and wondering what your thoughts are on this going forward. I know they had the issue seemed to be the expectations for 1.8 same-store sales goods, but they came in at 1.6. The revenues are high. They weren't bad. Uh, your thoughts are kind of breaking up there, but I know the question is Wendy's, and I know that I have uh, been very, very in favor of Wendy's now for two CEOs, and I'm not backing down. It's been a huge winner for us, and I'm going to stick with it. Wendy's is a good stock bye, bye, bye. and a good burger. Steve in South Dakota. Steve. Hey, what's up, Jim? Love the show. My question today is regarding Coke, the ticker KO. Um, it's approaching its 52-week low right now. The stock's been pretty beat up. I read that the beverage industry is expected to grow this year. Despite that, a lot of analysts are giving it the uh, a void. Uh, what's your take on Coke? All right, well, 20 times earnings, 3.7% yield, quality name, 52-week uh, low. I am going to say you buy it. I think you buy half right now, and then if it gets to 40, which I doubt it will, you buy the other half. Coca-Cola is a good company with a stock that is disliked right now, but I think it's got some nice turn going, and I think that James Quincy's doing a good job. All right, now, if you caught the return of the shack, well, then I congratulate you. But you know what? I think it's time to ring the register. The stock's just got incredibly expensive again. Much more man money at The CEO of SS&C started the business three decades ago with just 20000 bucks. Coming out as a market cap north of $11 billion. What are the secrets to its success? I'm going to ask the CEO. Then, why the trade thaw between the U.S. and the Chinese could mean game on for the semiconductor space. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. What do we 
make of the financial technology space here? Take SSNC Technologies. That's SSNC for you home gamers. It's a software company that helps financial services providers by giving them the tools they need to automate huge swaths of their business. Everything from back office functions like accounting, reporting, processing, and clearing to front office functions like trading and modeling. Now, SSNC has been a tremendous long-term performer. The stock has more than doubled over the past five years. It's rallied nearly 20% for 2018. Much of the recent move came in January when SSNC announced it was acquiring competitor DST Systems for $5.4 billion. Deal that closed last month. Okay, lately the stock has cooled off. The company reported two weeks ago, and while the headline numbers were basically in line, management's revenue guidance was viewed as a bit light by some, which led some people to conclude that it might take longer for the company to integrate the DST acquisition. We've got to find out about that. But I've got to tell you, this company has a great track record, so maybe they deserve the benefit of the doubt, which would mean the recent softness might be a buying opportunity. Let's take a closer look with Bill Stone, the founder, chairman, and CEO of SSNC Technologies. Find out more about how his company's doing where it's headed. Mr. Stone, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Love to see you. All right, first, people should understand that my old hedge fund was a was a client of yours. That's as right. frankly, oh, every hedge fund I knew. I mean, you own that business, don't you? Well, we have a big chunk. Yeah. And now, why is that? Because you got to give us the story. You have a storied history. I mean, you started with twenty thousand dollars three decades ago. There are a lot of people watching who you know who wish that they had been with you the law uh, throughout. Well, give us the the sense of history of what you built here. Well, Jim, like you, right? I've been in this business for a while and. And uh, I was lucky enough to work at a broker-dealer for four or five years and learned a lot about the securities processing business and, and was a consultant up at State Street for a while right. and USAA and, and founded SSNC in 86. And, um, you know, we got into the hedge fund business really in 97. We bought a company called uh, Shepard Brown Systems. In 99, we bought a Hedgeware. Right, which every, that's the one I know everybody uses. That's exactly right. And so we've... Um, Built on that, we've done 50 acquisitions and been able to uh, really build a, a great company with a lot of great people. How about the DST acquisition? That was a stock I recommended in my uh, last book because I felt that the company was inexpensive. I think you got a great price for it. We did. It's $5.4 billion, and, you know, it's um, a lot of debt we put on our, right. on our balance sheet. But interest rates are pretty reasonable today, and, and we have tremendous cash flow. I was going to say, you throw off a lot of cash. I mean, one of the questions on the conference calls, what are you going to do with the cash when it starts coming in? I thought they were premature, but people know all the cash you generate. That's right, and, and we've had a great track record of paying down debt. Right. You know, we went private with Carlisle in 2005, and, you know, we got up to over seven times. Right. And we paid it all down and, and then re, uh, re-upped it with Globop. And then again with Advent, but we've always paid it down very quickly. We're a very focused company. No, you are. You get some big wins, too. Uh, a $380 billion bank? That's right. We're a very large bank that we're doing all of that CISO, which is a current estimate of credit loss. Uh, that's going to be required of all financial institutions in 2020. And a lot of people are looking to... Uh, to move to that kind of a platform, and ours is very automated. Now, if you, that is something that I would much more be comfortable with you doing it than my own estimating of a credit loss, right? They would like an outsider to measure that. that that's right, and they, they need to have the right kind of technology to be able to, you know, it's masses of right. data, right? So you've got to be able to slice it and dice it and deliver it in time to make a decision. At the same time, there are some alternative investment companies, some real estate funds. I, again, want an outsider to give me a price. I don't want the guys who are doing the thing to say, I think it's worth X. Well, of course, right? And you have to have valuation models that you believe. Right. And then you also have to be aware, right? The people that are going to invest in what, what's called uh, 
level three assets, which right. are hard to price assets. You know, you got to be aware. You know, you, you, can't, uh, you can't get into something that you don't understand. Are there people who still do their own valuations and the partners, the investors, the limiteds are willing to accept that? Well, that's in their private placement memorandum where that says that we're going to have a pricing committee and the pricing committee is made up generally of people inside the fund. But the best funds use outsiders to also well, validate. Would you recommend to the people who are watching that there should be an outside person who does the valuation if it's a, something that's not just uh, listed stock prices? I, I think that's wise. Yeah, because I think that there are still many people who don't. You're making these modeling. Is this technological advances? Or are you using the kind of equipment we can, or is this just all uh, rocket scientists that you have on staff? Well, we have some of those rocket scientists, but at the same time, right, it's also common sense, right? It's making sure that the, the parameters that you put in are reasonable to anybody that's really in the financial markets. You know, if your interest rate parameters are, say, 100 basis points to 20%, that should cover most of the interest rate environment over the last 30 years. Well, I can tell people that yours is the most trusted company to get the outside valuations, or else we wouldn't have used it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh-huh. That's Bill Stowe, chairman and CEO of SS&C Technologies, an amazing company that is what you need to protect yourself and protect your investors. They have money's back yet to the break. It is time. It's up to the lane. We're going to go to Robert Rose. One of the and then the light round is over. Are you ready, Skate? It's up for the lightning round. We're going to start with Justin in California. Justin. Hey, Jim. Thanks so much for taking my call. Of course. So Align Technologies, the people behind Invisalign. I saw it at an all-time high today. I knew that one shouldn't be counted out. That stock dropped to the 240-230. Everyone decided it was no good. Now we're going to give it a little break, let it come in, and then we can do some buy. We're not going to buy at the all-time high. Let's go to Travis in Texas. Travis. Quavo. Yo. Booyah. Right back. SSW. Uh, Container ship. Uh, No. No. It's too high. It's moved up too much. Sell, 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 sell. Okay, I'm going to Joseph in California. Joseph. Booyah. Whoa, classic, classic booyah. What's up? Hey, I was wondering about uh, Berkshire Hathaway B shares. Buy, sell, or hold. Let me no, know. No, that Jim. is just a buy, buy, buy. I mean, we just buy, heard buy. the man talk. I love the pastiche of businesses, and it's not at its all time high. I think that's a buy. Let's go to Larry in Illinois. Larry. Yes, mine is about uh, Cantel Medical. What they're uh, okay. Yeah, growth. this medical device business is so hot, but this stock has moved so much. We again are going to wait for it to cool off. I like Thermo Fish a little better anyway. Let's go to Nick in Florida. Nick. Hey Jim, big booyah from Jacksonville here in Florida. Jax, nice what's happening? To you. What's going on? Ah uh, well. I'd like to ask a quick question, if you can, about IAC Interactive I think the Corp. parts are worth a lot more than the whole lot out of sell-off based on the fact that Facebook wants to get into that dating business. I think that they have an unassailable position. Let's go to Matt in California. Matt. Jim, what's your 18-month outlook for the business and stock of Symantec? Well, they did say today the results may change after investigation. So my outlook is accounting irregularities equals sell. It's all in real money. I can't deviate. I cannot deviate from my position. I am not going there. I'm going to Gordon in New Mexico, though. Gordon. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. My question is, uh, Core Real Estate Company, 
I have held it for quite a while now. I love it because it's a great and it has a great dividend, but it seems like it hasn't done much last uh, any time this year. But last year it was on a tear. I don't know what to do with it. Now. That's Core Sight or Core Core Sight. Okay, look, we like Core Sight at Data Center. We think that the data center is red hot, but we understand that the real estate investment trusts have not been red hot. I am a buyer, not a seller of that stock. Mike in Arizona, Mike. Good afternoon, Jim, and a big booyah from hot Arizona. Oh, yeah, what's up? We all appreciate your intelligent insights into the market. Ah, you're and very my kind. Question Thank is you. about High Crush HCL. Yeah, you know what? This is another one of those stories. This sand, uh, you know, this frack sand, it has gotten way too high. I am going to tell sell, you sell, right sell, now. Sell, 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 ka-ching, sell. ka-ching. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Wall Street annihilated the semiconductor stocks after Apple reported its numbers. Can the prospect of mergers bring back those stocks? Or are maybe things better than we think? We saw some fantastic moves in the semiconductor stocks today, although much of those moves were given up by the end of the session. Now, these stocks folded higher at the opening, largely because the president is making friendly gestures toward China. Not long ago, the Commerce Department banned American companies from selling components to ZTE. That's a big Chinese handset maker. So China turned around and blocked Qualcomm's acquisition of NXP semiconductors. But now the president is tweeting about giving ZTE permission to buy parts that it needs or else it might not stay in business, which would cost 70,000 workers their jobs. So the Chinese, according to a Bloomberg report, are reconsidering that tough stance against Qualcomm buying NXP. I can't stress enough how important this news is for the group, because without the hope of takeovers, you got a lot of cheap stocks in the sector, but not a lot of catalysts to move them higher. Just look at the chip makers that we're flying today. First, you've got the companies with a ton of exposure to Apple itself. Cirrus Logic, Skyworks Solutions, Texas Instruments, Broadcom. These stocks have been hammered by a real one-two punch. The U.S. government's move to block Broadcom's attempt to buy Qualcomm and the general slowing of the cell phone business. Remember, Apple stock, when the company reported, didn't roar because it reported great cell phone numbers. I thought they were great, but Wall Street didn't. They, these stocks were because of a pickup. The Apple roared because of a pickup in the company's service revenue stream. OK, those are two different things. Service revenue versus the actual handset sales. Given the softness in smartphones that Wall Street perceived, there was no reason to buy these semiconductor stocks without the possibility of takeovers. Now, we know that if the Chinese bless the Qualcomm NXP deal, the serial acquirer that is Broadcom has to be on the hunt for another deal to bulk up its earnings, even as Morgan Stanley has an excellent piece out today giving you multiple paths to higher prices, including aggressive buyback. I'm not sure what Skyworks wants to do. The company's so well run and the stock is so darn cheap, it didn't have to, it, it did have an excellent quarter. Skyworks shouldn't have to do a thing. But that's not how the stock market is working right now. The others are all fodder for Broadcom. Same goes uh, for Xilinx, which has some cell phone exposure, but has more of an Internet of Things component, as well as Marvel Tech and integrated device technologies, all of which could be sale, for sale at the right price. The semis are a tight-knit group brought together by ETFs. And while I generally hate anything that makes a cohort of disparate stocks trade like commodities, today it very much worked in your favor. Companies that have some Apple exposure, companies like Micron and Texas Instruments, they all got pulled up right along with the Broadcom targets, even though uh, neither of those two is likely to take over candidate. Don't get me wrong. I think both Texas Instruments and Micron were unjustly punished after they reported. But it's not like today's rally made much sense for them either. They aren't takeover candidates. 
Now, we know that neither Intel nor NVIDIA is a takeover play either. Nevertheless, you can't have all the semis going up except for those two. The sector is way too joined in the hip. Now, NVIDIA had an amazing quarter last week, but those who wanted a blowout from cryptocurrencies really had no clue about what's driving the stock, namely gaming, the data center, autonomous driving. Intel's got tailwinds galore from its traditional PC business, but as well, they got the data center and also autonomous driving after it bought Mobileye for $15 billion last year. Unfortunately, that's not why they rallied today. Finally, one more to consider. Advanced Micro Devices, AMD. Dr. Lisa Su, the CEO, gave you an incredibly strong quarter with excellent results from the data center, gaming, and personal computers. But AMD had the misfortune uh, uh, to report right in the middle of the bruising semiconductor sell-off. At last, it came alive today, rallying 2%. I can tell you that this group became seriously underweighted as part of the trade war dialogue, harder hit than any other because of the ZTE component issue and what looked like the end of M&A for the semis. Now that everything's back on the table, and there are no earnings in sight, the chipmakers can lead for a couple of days as hedge funds seek to be much bigger in the very stocks they gave up on last month. In fact, they seem to be funding these acquisitions by selling the more highly valued cloud kings. The chase is on. Yes, the chase for performance. And while that's a bad way to manage money, it should prove very helpful for the seven doctor stocks right now. Stick with Kramer. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. You know, I follow Fang pretty closely, having come up with the name. It's been a little while since Fang has been pronounced dead. When I saw the reversals today in Adobe and in Salesforce and Splunk, I figured just a matter of time before someone says, you know what? Fang is dead. I think that's probably tomorrow's business, so I want you to be careful. If you haven't taken anything off of those stocks, but you're actually a long-term holder, that's fine. Short-termers, though? I think that you might say, hey, why didn't Kramer give me a heads up that Fang had gotten overheated again? I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'd find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.